0: This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of, you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that that helps patients with diseases. Life 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 saving. Well, I'm really overjoyed uh, to welcome our next guest to the show. Uh, Leslie Millar Nicholson is the executive director of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Technology Licensing Office, or the TLO for short. And she was part of the founding leadership team of the recently formed MIT Office of Strategic Alliances and Technology Transfer. As TLO executive director, she leads a team managing MIT's intellectual assets and technology transfer process. Prior to arriving in Cambridge, Ms. Milar Nicholson was director of the Office of Technology Management, or OTM, at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where we first met and had the opportunity to work together on a number of projects. Um, and she was doing similar things uh, managing the technology transfer and commercialization process over 10 years there. And, uh, and in her current role, um, she's she's now been in this chair for, for seven years. Um, she is past president of the Board of Governors of Certified Licensing Professionals, a former member of the Board of Directors of the Licensing Executive Society, and is on the board of Cambridge Enterprise UK as an external advisor. She's a native of Scotland, as you'll hear in just a moment, and she has as a BED, MED, and MBA and is a certified licensing professional. So Leslie, it's just a pleasure to see you again and have you on the show. It's great to see you too, Mike. Well, one thing that I uh, was w- wondering if you could do is um, maybe just provide a level set for our audience around the technology licensing office and um, just kind of what is it, what is its role at MIT and what are you involved in with regards to just those that term, TLO?
1: Certainly. So, any research university in the United States, and, and in fact across the world, um, has some sort of office like the TLO at MIT has. And in fact, um, by law, we have an obligation if, if we receive federal funding to take ownership of intellectual property and to find a way to get it into the hands of people who can develop it and have a global impact. And I mean, that follows in, in the path of MIT's mission, which is obviously teaching research and service, but is actually to address unmet needs, to have global impact across the world um, and the US. And so our office, like many others, Work with faculty to identify intellectual property, to protect it, market license and manage it for its entire life. And that can be patentable IP, or it can be software, copyright, uh, and other sorts of intellectual property.
0: And MIT has a broad array of different disciplines, correct? I mean, it's not only contained to life sciences, there are so many different areas of technology. Can you maybe comment on the breadth of
1: IP? Oh, yeah. So let's just, uh, if if we're looking at inputs, we're looking at $700 million worth of research going on on campus, and $1.1 billion dollars going on at Lincoln Labs and we also manage the IP coming out of Lincoln Labs. So that ranges from very applied research that's going on in, in Lincoln Labs to everything from gene editing to ag technology to food, um, uh, material science, uh, communication, security, AI, um, algorithm software, you name it. Um, and, and one of the things about the change from when I was at Illinois to MIT is the volume of work that we deal with is so big. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we moved from a strong ecosystem with 250 inventions a year. And here at MIT, uh, we are managing upwards of 600 inventions. And so that in and of itself kind of demonstrates just the the uh, the well the entrepreneurs, the faculty members. There's, there's an expectation of engagement uh, that we're very lucky to have. Mm-hmm. Our work really is about working in partnership both with the faculty and students and graduate students and partners like venture capitalists and others to find homes for these very nascent technologies and to work out exactly how they can have impact. And I know that's a very generic statement, but ultimately some technologies, can be sliced and diced a million ways in terms of what applications they might have. Others might be more focused on a particular therapeutic for a particular area of health. Um, so our job and the staff that we have, there's 50 50 staff uh, working in conjunction with faculty to kind of work out how, how, how do we do that.
0: And can you maybe describe a little bit for the listening audience um, what, what happens, you know, after that patent is filed and the faculty member says, I've got this idea? More often than not, is, is it spun out into a startup company? Or I would imagine there's a lot of interactions with larger companies as well. But maybe you could maybe yeah. uh, break that down a little bit. What happens after it? leaves the TLO and it's now you know a, a license, if you will, to a, uh, a company or a, or a startup.
1: Well, can I actually go back a little bit yes. um, to talk about the engagement to begin with? Because the very first conversation and this is why it's so important with entrepreneurs who want to work with any university tech transfer office to get access to this IP is kind of understanding the technology and where it came from and perhaps a faculty member or, or the lab group have ideas about how it could be utilized. you know, They can ascertain this is what I was working towards when this invention arose and that's when they disclose to us and that's when they have the conversation and that begins the journey of discovery both in terms of IP strategy as well as commercialization strategy. So when they disclose to us we have those conversations, we decide on whether or not we can and should protect something if it's protectable IP and then we begin the kind of working out, how could it be transferred? And it could well be that it is a startup company that a faculty member or a lab group has in mind. But we also have a duty to kind of work out, is that the best home? Mm-hmm. Often people ask us, how do you choose between a startup and a, and a and a large company? And my answer, and I don't mean to be flip, is kind of like, well, the technology decides. Is it too early to be anything but a development project through a proof of concept Concept fund within the university? Um, is it something that could be taken and put into a, a software, existing software that a big company has and it's just an, an, an added module? It could go in very quickly into a, into a large company. Or is it, is it another pathway which could be startup company, but it needs corporate engagement, venture investment from a corporate partner because they really need a distribution channel early on? And so those conversations happen happen um, within the tech transfer office as we begin to map out the pathway. And then to your question, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get there. I setting the stage. Is is like, okay, so perhaps it's not a startup and this technology actually could be adopted by multiple parties. And we have a ground penetrating radar, which actually has multiple licensees in multiple fields of use. And this is the job of a tech transfer professional: is to kind of like, how many needles do I need to thread to ensure that this technology has as much impact as possible? And often, when licensees, whether a large company or small company, comes to us and say, "We want all fields, all uses, forever," Mm -hmm. and we kind of go, "Really? Do you have the capacity? Do you have the? Is that really your product line? How are you going to do that?" And so we do, and are very careful because we have a responsibility on behalf of both the government, if it's government funded, and the the university to make sure that we are handing over an asset to a party who will do right by it. Mm -hmm. And that's when the discussions occur with regard to kind of what's the shape of the license and what are the diligence terms, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I'm getting way ahead of myself.
0: No, that's exactly what I was kind of uh, leading toward and maybe um, spending just one more minute um, about the interaction with faculty, um, what is it about MIT that draws maybe a certain type of faculty to the ecosystem, one that maybe is more applied in nature? And maybe this is something I'm thinking about describing that individual from the outside. You live with these faculty, you're interacting with them all the time. And so what is it really like? And what, what are the some of the characteristics that make a great innovative faculty member that Not only does great science, but it's something that's applied enough to have some commercial value.
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. And often, you know, we have people visiting from all over the world saying we want to be like you. How do we do it? And we're kind of like, well, the secret sauce, one, is in the people. And you're right. Our faculty are so driven, and I don't mean driven to commercialization success and lots of money. I'm talking about having an impact in terms of getting technologies out but also seeing the fruits of their labor in the hands of the people they've trained Mm -hmm. remembering that we're a research institution in part and an educational institution all the time and so it's the balancing of that so with teaching and research and service comes this special human being who is really inspire to engage, and I don't know how they do it. If you think about all of the faculty we work with, they have multiple hats on. They could be founders of startup companies. They are effectively business managers within their own labs, and they're also mentors, mentors to their research group as well as colleagues around the world. So I don't know what it is that brings these people in, but there is an expectation in your role at MIT that you are gonna help stuff happen Uh uh and so with that there is not a lot of persuasion that needs to occur for people to engage with us and I'll caveat that with as long as we do right by them in terms of we're a service organization and we should never lose that so you know responding promptly Given your rationale, whether it's a yes or no on a patent filing, all of those things are really important. We are blessed to have an engaged community that doesn't take a lot for them to come to our door or to answer the phone when we call them.
0: And you mentioned, um, it, both in an earlier comment that you made and even just in that broader statement about being a service organization, um, trying to provide value you know, to that really important constituency, the faculty. You also talked a little bit about resources. Uh, You said something about POC funding. Um, Can you maybe describe the array of um, programs uh, or examples of programs that are available to faculty? I'm thinking about like the Despanda Center, uh, the Engine. These are you know various. Um, you know, platforms that um, are supportive of that translation, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, and and maybe again, just the bigger picture is MIT has over 85 entrepreneurship and innovation programs available to both faculty and students. Some of them are more oriented towards the kind of entrepreneur without borders, uh, you know, class type activity, business plan building, etc. Some are very focused on intellectual property owned by MIT, which is only a small sliver of the entrepreneurial community because students are out there doing their own thing, having their own ideas and taking advantage of these programs as mm-hmm. well. But Dishpandi is the one proof-of-concept program supporting Um, MIT owned IP only. So there isn't any student projects, etc. in there. And as everybody knows, probably if you're familiar with any university, some of these ideas are just a twinkle in the eye. And they need testing. They need the tires kicked. They need de-risked. Uh, fail fast, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, So Dushpandy provides that. Other programs are a mix of that. So Delta V which is part of the Martin Trust program just had their accelerator presentations on Friday. I believe there was 22 startups presented. Now, maybe two of those might have MIT owned IP but again these are opportunities for engagement with alumni and venture uh, investors and people just having an experience. And I want to articulate something that I Year, over and over again is some programs such as Dushbandi focus on both the entrepreneur and the technology. This technology needs de-risk, it needs a little more work and development, there's no federal funding that provides that really, um, let's put some money into that. Other programs are supporting the person. Hmm. And it's agnostic to what the technology is. Mm. So venture mentoring service is all about the person. Delta V is a mix. It's really uh, pushing on the entrepreneur, but they get a little bit of money to try and prove their idea and get you know feedback from customers. i program, as you're familiar with, yes. runs out of v- uh, venture mentoring service. They're focused on the person at the same time as kind of looking at does this market exist?
0: Yeah. Customer discovery. Customer like discovery,
1: yeah. all of that stuff. And then uh, sandbox. Fox is a program that supports undergraduates and they provide small amounts of money predominantly educationally focused and the engine is as you know um, the both accelerator and fund and I, I want to be also clear and not in any way to uh, to, to, to take away from the value they bring but the engine, Serves many entrepreneurs not just MIT it is not it is of MIT but it is works very closely with Harvard they've funded Northeastern they've funded uh, stuff out of Tufts and you know might be jointly owned et cetera et cetera so more people in the ecosystem allow us more opportunities to try and get as many of those 600, 700 inventions out the door if they're actually um, destined shall we say for a startup versus Versus, as you mentioned, the kind of those things that might go to a corporate star, uh, yep. a corporate company. But I think that's cool
0: too, is the diversity of the inputs. It's not all MIT originated. And on the other hand, it's a convener of good ideas, good people, and density.
1: Yeah, and I know you're focusing a lot or, or on life sciences. This is what is extraordinarily about MIT. We don't have a medical school, we don't have a hospital. The number of invention disclosures we see that have impact in human health demonstrates the connective tissue between us and MGB, and Harvard, and all of the other hospital systems, uh, Dana-Farber, et cetera, et cetera, because our faculty are out there. They have appointments in other places, and so it's extraordinarily important that people realize that sometimes there will be three universities at least at the beginning at the table because there's three inventors three faculty from different parts of the ecosystem and sometimes it's like why are all these people in the room well we don't have the capacity to do clinical trials at MIT or you know we don't do the lab work that occurs in the clinic um, in some of the medical schools so that's why that stuff happens
0: well, if we could just step back in time a little bit, maybe uh, learn a little bit more about your journey, if we could. Um, I'm curious to see kind of what got you started down this path. Maybe we could even describe, you know, um, what were some of your initial insp- inspirations that, you know, brought you into the the, the journey that you're currently on? And you, you obviously, you know, came from... Um, Scotland and came to the U.S. Tell us a little bit about you know some of the risk taking that uh, that happened you know in, in making that jump.
1: So um, and this is why you know in our pre discussion I was like eh I don't know if I'm the right person for this discussion. Um, my journey is atypical and has nothing to do with science and nothing to do with law or business. It is a very personal journey. Um, I came to this, and if this is TMI for your audience, just tell me to this time out and move on. You're exactly who we want on the
0: show. <laughs> We're trying to demonstrate that you don't have to start off, you know, as a child and have this path right. well, well lined up for you. In fact, I mean, even my own background—I'm a business person, so it's a—it's a place and a and a a possibility for a broad array of different um, individuals with different driving factors for what bring them in. So please carry on.
1: So um, I am not a scientist and I'm not a lawyer. I do have an MBA. My training originally was uh, in physical education. I trained as a PE teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a variety of reasons, uh, in, in my first journey to the States, I came across as an exchange student and I then met my now wife, but because of federal law, we couldn't stay together. Mm -hmm. So I left, and I took up a completely different career in the UK, and I uh, was managing sports centers and got into sports management, and then, because of a change in law, there was a contracting process, so I got deeply involved in the contracting Mm -hmm. of all of the sports facilities, Uh, in Bristol, in England, and I was there for 12 years managing the contracts on behalf of the city council for all of the sports facilities, whether they were swimming pools or whatever. So completely unrelated to anything. And then by, and this is my life, and you ask about decision making, uh, serendipitous. Mm -hmm. Got back in touch with my now wife, Laurie, and decided to say, you know what, this was meant to be. Mm-hmm. So the only way I could get back into the States, she tried to come to the UK. She, she was a lawyer. It was not going to be an easy journey. So we decided that I would go back to school.
0: Okay.
1: And I applied. She was in Chicago. And um, she. W- I ended up applying to University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana and was accepted there for a two-year program. So I had two years yeah. to work out how the heck I was going <laughs> to stay in the States. Yeah. Um discovered that I was probably it's the... It's an entrepreneurial challenge. Yeah. Uh, I was probably one of the oldest students in the class. And in fact, I remember on my first day, I walked in and I think everybody stood up because they thought I was a professor. <laughs> um, and then I kind of said, no, 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 I'm with you guys. Uh, and had a tremendous journey there, kind of popping open my brain in terms of just understanding a completely different culture, um, even though I'd done a master's degree at the University of Georgia in Athens some years previously, the MBA was a different thread altogether and in in that journey there the university, and again, talk about stars aligning. Mm-hmm. I am not a person who maps any path out, and this is about decision making. Um, I was given an opportunity because uh, University of Illinois was rebuilding its tech transfer office. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what tech transfer was. It was being rebuilt by a chap called Mike Fritz. He was the uh, the Carl Foundation uh, CEO, just retired, and I took an internship there. And so, for twelve weeks over the summer, we worked through about seven hundred. Technologies, trying to kind of weed out those that you shouldn't be on the shelf, get those that were worthy of review uh, and assessment.
0: Did, did he give you? Some, was there some like pattern recognition that you were able to kind of do that triage that you were able to kind of quickly, the, you know, grasp, yeah. so that you could help with
1: that process? The the university hired a consultant. Okay, and they mapped out. The, those criteria and the mechanism everything soup to nuts kind of things to look at put us in front of panels up in Chicago okay. to kind of do our pitch to see is this worthy and from that internship sorry I'm taking too long um, I was given an opportunity to stay on as an intern for the entire second year but Separately, at the time, um, Illinois had this uh, consulting program called OSBI, which was a student consulting program, which has morphed into something else now. Mm. And I was offered the position of the student exec director. Mm. And I thought that was probably something that I'd enjoy doing. So I turned down the internship for the rest of the year, took that role up. But when I graduated, I was still in the in the in the throes of how do I stay? Yes. Because I was obviously wanting to stay, and um, a position opened up at the tech transfer office, and I was hired as a tech manager. Yeah. And from there, I um, spent about three years and then one day Mike Fritz walked in and said, you know, I'm about to retire again and I think you'd be a really good interim, but I think you should apply for the job as director. And I was like, well, I can't be any worse of a director than I am a tech (laughs) transfer officer, so sure. And so I took that opportunity when presented and they did a national search and I was lucky enough in 2006 to be made that That's amazing. Wow, that
0: is so, that's such, such an inspiring story. That is so cool. I didn't even know about that that journey and that pathway. But thank goodness for the stars aligning to get, you know, into that position and then continue your progression thereafter. One thing you kind of alluded to but we didn't, you know, dive too deeply into and we but we touched on it a little bit when we talked about faculty. One thing that I've not always fascinated with in terms of um, my own journey is the people the characters the inventors you know and, and not only the inventors but the people around the process yeah um, are there any characteristics that you think are really particularly important for you mentioned you've got 50 people on the team and I would imagine that there's a lot of different sub skills required especially when you're trying to break down a technology and its application and market size and all those kinds of things. But when it comes to people skills, are there any things you look for on building your team that you know can relate to people? It, it, like you said, it is a service yeah. function. Are, are you constantly looking for the right people that have that service uh, capability?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, so from... Yes, is the answer, and we all have our strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. um and i and, and I will say I think the reason I've succeeded to date is because I can read people pretty well with regard to kind of what makes them tick. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who works in our office has to have a number of different things to I'll say succeed one is you just got to be able to manage high work volume, I mean, and the demands of extraordinarily talented faculty. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to kind of look at the long game um, with the people you're working with. It's kind of like in the moment you can come across all sorts of individuals and you really kind of have to come keep coming back to what is our mission, what is our goal, how do I serve it well, and not get too wrapped up in some of the things that might go on in the university, whether it's politics or thinking that somebody has got nefarious ideas or whatever. And I don't mean the people in the university, but mm-hmm. folks who come in saying, I want to get your technology mm-hmm. and I want it on the cheap. Sure. Um, so being able to read people is one of the things. And then just always being able to lift your head up and look over what you're doing in the moment. Um, really helps because it's very easy with high volume with high stress to get lost in the moment and get very emotional about things and that's understandable but you also have to be able to gauge that in order to be able to deliver the results that are expected of us
0: when you think about you know continuing to to serve and you look out you know in in this uh, in the next five years as you think about where MIT, um, is today as it relates to to TLO. Um, one of the big things we talk a lot about, you know, as a team at Portal and just across the industry, is really thinking about how are we providing more access to uh, a more diverse workforce. When you think about biotech in particular, the roles needed for the industry to scale. Go far beyond, you know, a, you know, a very homogeneous population, and so the needs for diverse talent yeah. in every element of the, the organization right. are critical. And my question is, as it relates to, you know, the TLO that's representing, you know, a very prolific institution, the most prolific from an invention perspective. Um, what is the role of trying to kind of create? and, and uh, support diversity, uh, not only on your team, but as you think about serving, you know, a, an array of individual inventors.
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, you've touched on something that I feel very strongly about. I mean, even just thinking about people and hiring people into our office and thinking about neurodiversity and different ways in which people work. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to think of everybody as, you know, homogeneous. Um And, you know, even just allowing people space to kind of be on their own to work through things. And I don't mean because they're writing something up. It's just like different people respond differently. So your question about how... Well, I'm going to ask. Can you repeat the question? Because I lost myself in my own words there. My question really
0: is, as it relates to kind of setting the tone. You're you're a gateway yeah. in many yeah. ways to to, to the yeah. to the intellectual property. But there's people behind the intellectual property, right? Right. So to what to what degree? And I guess I'm trying to relate it to, you know, in order for diversity to enter into you know the startup world, into the venture world, yeah. you know, in, into the industry itself. The I, I believe the inventors behind it need to be yeah. diverse as well. And so I just wonder if, if yeah. the complexion of your team needs to reflect that, anything that relates to kind of yeah. prioritizing diversity. Yeah,
1: no, you're, you're absolutely right. Yes, it does. Um, and I think we have to do a lot of self-examination and be very intentional about things that stop people coming to us. So we've had many conversations about, is there a way in which we ask questions of female entrepreneurs, female inventors that is different And I know that there is evidence out there from different research studies that says maybe maybe it's not research studies and maybe it's anecdotal. It's like female entrepreneurs will be asked more negative questions from venture capitalists than more males. Uh, you know, you really think you can do this right. with that amount of money versus, oh, is that all you want? Uh, right. Type question. So we've had many conversations. I'm not saying we've implemented anything uh, that I can speak to at the moment about being very self aware. Mm-hmm about ways in which people engage. And this is about different people work differently. Different people want to talk to us in different ways. It's not only Zoom. It's in person. It's not in a busy place. It's in a quiet place. You don't know what it is that an individual may be feeling stressed about when they come and talk to us. And that's the other thing about just generally demystifying us. We are not a bunch of stuffy lawyers sitting waiting to say no. So how do we become more approachable? And in that to your point about representation, do we have a diverse population Mm -hmm. of people, age, gender, Mm -hmm. um, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, that is reflective of of our audience? And I'm happy to say I I feel as though we do, but Mm -hmm. we have to be intentional about Mm -hmm. it all the time. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And creating that environment that you've you've created an environment that creates the conditions where um, people are unafraid to come and present and and at least make the attempt to, to you know, right. go down the pathway to, you know, spin out the technology.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, those things can be, you know, Future Founders, which is one of the initiatives that Sangeeta Bhatia and others put together for giving uh, female faculty exposure to opportunities with venture capitalists, to sitting on boards. to uh, We have purposefully kind of said, and we will sit down with you, and I won't say a safe space, but in a space where we can walk through this at whatever pace you want to understand this. Because I can imagine the And in fact, I I do know this to be a fact, is that female faculty are more likely to wait to near perfection Mm. before they disclose an Mm. invention. I see. Versus male faculty who will more likely go, good enough. Mm -hmm. And so there you have a gap of readiness, which is like, well, why do we have 10 and 3? Well, maybe if if they waited till they were all near ready, it might be 3. Right. So um, there's uh, another culture of... In education about even when to engage yeah. with us that needs to go on and needs to go on as early as possible in the process. It's very
0: interesting. What would you say have been you know you've um, both within your role at uh, University of Illinois and now at MIT? What do you think's changed the most in terms of and maybe nothing maybe in terms of the you know the role of the TLO today to um, the university versus maybe. Where it originated. I mean, I've yep. certainly seen, you know, uh, a landscape change um, with regards to how universities um, are changing their business model to some degree, and some of it is centered around innovation. Yep. Um, you know, if you if you don't have a Division One football program, then you maybe, and maybe even if you do, you're still trying to prioritize innovation. Yeah. And I think some of that is both in terms of maintaining eminence and Attracting and retaining great talent, some of it's economic. I mean, those yep. individuals tend to, you know, have an outsized impact on not only the grants that come in, and those are fewer today than they were maybe a long time ago, um, but also, um, you know, they're more prolific at, you know, s- startups, and that's potentially recurring revenue and philanthropic funds and all those right. kinds of things. Are you seeing anything? What's your observation, Ben, I guess, in terms of your role at U U of I and now at MIT?
1: So first and foremost, as land grants have for the longest of time had economic development as one of their missions. Mm -hmm. Other universities have kind of added that in. I mean, MIT, unbeknownst to many people, is actually a land grant university. Mm -hmm. so for many, the economic development spin, however it was achieved, whether it was 4-H or, or whatever, ag engagement, um, has been around for land grants. Um, the change, I think, there's, there's a number of different things playing in this. Yes, grants are more competitive. I think the, the amount of money is about the same, but I think they're more competitive. Um, the, the other push really has been on the expectations of the sponsors, mm. The government in particular, if you think that the majority of major universities in in the US have got about 80 to 90 percent of the research funding still coming from the federal government. Mm -hmm. I think MIT has about 20 percent that comes from corporations. Mm -hmm. And the expectations of outcomes and deliverables for impact in the areas that the government is looking for are much greater now. And with that come obligations that are now built into contracts about whether it's U.S. manufacturing, small businesses, uh, protection, and making sure that we are not engaging in, uh, let's say, governments that are adverse to the U.S. That adds a layer of complexity to to the licensing process in and of itself. With that then comes, uh, well, what what is a kernel of business operations within a university that already exist that we can add responsibilities to? So the changes that I've seen predominantly have been that oh, there's a group across there that does take transfer. Perhaps they can do business development. Perhaps they Mm. can run an incubator. Mm. Perhaps they can run an accelerator. Now, whether or not that's like Columbia does and it gets funding from New York City and they have a model and it's all very slick and whatever, or it's a... You're going to build an accelerator. You're going to build an incubator, and then you're going to run it. I mean, the expectations and the demands on tech transfer offices has been kind of like, you're smart. You know, you're already in this game. Could you do some of this for us? Now, the downside to that is if the expectation is to make money, it's going to fail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, 80% of U.S. universities don't even cover their operating costs for tech transfer, so if you ask them to do more, and try and get more money out yeah. of it. It's yeah. just not going to work. Right. Yeah. So these are investable opportunities from the perspective of if the goal is to have impact in economic development, in jobs, and startup right. companies, and skills, yeah. and graduates who have jobs based on the research that they've done, whether small business or large business, then recognise that as an investment, and don't focus so much on the ROI that you're yeah. never going to get because this is a blip.
0: Yeah, no, that's really well said, Leslie. And that's, uh, in, in a nutshell, my observation as well. It's, a, it's been a shift from a P&L mindset to an investment mindset. And this is not you know the same at every place, but there's been a shift in that direction that has recognized that if you really want true translation, it's a long-term game. And so you're in the value creation business. You're not in the P&L eat exactly what you kill right. business of, of of that was typically the model right. of of the past which was to cover cover your costs that's you know that's exactly right yeah and to your point it, but i haven't heard it said that way yes naturally there's one place on campus that's you know interfacing with the outside world so let's just keep giving them more <laughs> things right. to do incubator and you know business development and a lot of corporate alliances and 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 certainly it probably is the most practical place to start but the, the, you already mentioned i mean the, the range of skills you need on your team you know our you know They're they're highly specialized, right? Exactly. And
1: and honestly, I mean, if you ask any of my colleagues who are in tech transfer, if they thought they'd be doing sixteen different things in the way they've been asked, the answer would be no. But we do the best we can because we're a service organization. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um,
1: And so again, I mean, my first question to administrations who come in and say we want to be like you is, I'm like. Where does your tech transfer office report to? If it's the vice president for finance or the college of business, it's the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And how are they funded? Mm -hmm. And if they're not funded sufficiently, they're never going to succeed. Now, I don't mean that they've got to have... You can't just keep building and building and building. You have to be able to say, we're going to use our money smartly. And to the extent we can, because we don't have a crystal ball, we're going to make investments at risk Mm -hmm. over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to say... We know that within six years of filing a patent, if it's not licensed, it's unlikely it's going to be licensed. Right. right. I mean, that's notwithstanding, you know, somebody gives it back and there's other fields of use, et cetera. But for the most part, those are the time tracks that we're going to. But you need to be able mm-hmm. to know that you can invest even for that long in order to give it that chance.
0: Yeah, and I do think that, you know, in when you think about it from a value creation perspective, universities aren't particularly... uniquely privileged position and they're in the long game and they have the opportunity to have a broad array of interests, you know, across selected assets that both time and magnitude are increasing the chances that over the longer term, value will have been created Um, in in any one of those buckets, jobs created, companies formed, royalties returned. But that's a long, you know, you're looking over a longer horizon. But I think it's my own bias is it's appropriate, because that's where the long term gains. And that's when you look at fast forwarding today around Kendall Square and MIT and Harvard and everything that is. That's because people made long bets
1: yeah and you just have to look at the University of Illinois system now when I started there back in 2000 they had not broken ground yet on what is now that huge research park they're going to break ground I don't know if they already have on the second incubator I mean that is a place that knew what it would take got the investment they needed Mm -hmm. and it is a sea change Mm -hmm. as you know from what it used to be and the difficulty still is How do you sustain things that I mean? I remember, and you know, forgive. I hope my colleagues forgive me, but I remember that we had to ship in, um, literally, or fly in, uh, interim CEOs and people to come into the middle of the cornfields to give advice and guidance to our faculty. Because as great as the ecosystem was, as it was small and it was limited in the skill set. And you talk about the skill set for tech transfer offices. Mm-hmm. You've then got then who else is providing input because there's a point at which, and we don't launch startups at MIT, we license mm-hmm. into startups and it's all of these other programs and it is our alumni who help enormously in guiding and shaping some of the startups that are launched uh, from uh, uh, from Kendall School.
0: Yeah, no, very, very interesting. Well, you know, it, it, if you look out kind of, um, you know, on the horizon, are there any areas uh, of technology that give you particular e- excitement? I mean, there's just such a diversity. So it's probably an impossible question to well, to answer.
1: It is an impossible question because then I don't want to show favoritism, but you because I knew the question was coming up, I actually wrote down some that I, I find, I would say intriguing, just exciting. Again, as a non-scientist, I'm excited from the oh my gosh, isn't that so cool point of view. But also like, this is why we do this. Whether you're a scientist or a lawyer, this is why we do it. So I've got a few I want to mention. Out of the McGovern Institute, there's a company called Tome Biosciences, which is uh, using CRISPR, inserting genetic sequences into any location of the gene mom. So it's kind of the next generation of gene editing. Mm-hmm. And I will be very interested to watch to see where this uh, uh, startup goes. And the two scientists behind it, Jonathan Gutenberg and Omar uh, Abudai, are just rock stars. Awesome. They're people to, to look at. There's one out of uh, Kripovara Varanasi's lab, which is an ag tech, which I'm always fascinated by, having come from the cornfields to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, they spray um, agrochemicals onto leaves, and the way it is sprayed allows it to adhere better to the leaves, so there's less runoff. So the impact on the downstream mm-hmm. waste stream is greater, wow. so you get more efficiency. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, of the of the ch- chemical or the agrochemical, and less damage and less toxins into into the ground. Okay. So less stuff can have greater impact. Sure. I mentioned the ground penetrating radar which I always think is fascinating because you can slice and dice that and even you know talking from transport is a car or is a, a, a rail track these things you can split up and say we'll give access in this area or that so that was a really acrobatics kind of pretzel like maneuvering from our licensing officers to work out that, and there was even an ag um, soil density um, uh, field that they identified. Ed Boyden has got stuff going in, again gene editing, uh, vision restoration, Mm. uh, where they have a mechanism for uh, inserting uh, changes to the gene within the eye, which could, I'll say for certain people, um, reverse blindness. It's crazy. Which is crazy, isn't it? Things that are often understated, all of the research tools that come out of labs, so mouse models, things that help big companies screen for drug discovery sure. and cancer Study, yeah. are happening all the time. And these are small licenses, you know, temp- temporary year, year, two years long, but these tools are coming out of labs mm-hmm. and some do more than others, but again, it's kind of like what You know, how does the sausage work? You know, how do you have impact in all these different ways? That's such a
0: great point, though, too, and such a critical tool when you think about it, especially in a field that's like uh, exploding in, you know, new modalities you mentioned, CRISPR, RT. But then the post-human genome, you know, project and, you know, genetic profiling mouse models become critical to figuring out, you know, can you take this molecule and get it into humans that maybe you know, didn't benefit from a checkpoint inhibitor, exactly. but they could benefit from this next generation
1: right, product, right. yeah. yeah. Um, we have a suite of ready-to-sign licenses, and I know there's people, it's kind of like Marmite, you either love them or you hate them, mm-hmm. um, is, is uh, we have a suite of software that is not exclusively licensed, and you can basically get it and be sent the code and, you know, whatever. But again, these are things that often research groups are using. Big companies use them. They are algorithms for aerofoil design. There's all sorts of things, but we've tried to make it accessible. Again, as a service organization, it's low dollars. Many, many people take them every year, 50 to 60 licenses a year, Mm -hmm. and you want to be able to transact them and get them out the door. Again, the way in which we think about our business has to go beyond the we just need somebody to take this technology and get it. You're kind of like, how do we get this into the hands of as many people as possible as quickly as possible? Uh, Last couple, Aeroshield materials. uh, It's a silica aerogel and it's basically a sheet that you can put on existing windows and it thermal insulates. Hmm. So you know, energy cost reduction. And as our world burns around us, isn't that important? So uh, low density, super insulation, heat resistant, blah, 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 blah. And then the last one, which is actually something we returned to the inventors. We assigned it back. And this, I think, shows our system work working. The company is Biobot Analytics. They had great impact and continue to have great impact Um, over COVID um, uh, where they do wastewater analysis. Mm. And so they can detect outbreaks or Mm. surges in things like COVID or RSV or other uh, virus laden um, uh, uh, diseases by reading the wastewater wow. in a community, and yeah. then they can analyze it, and uh, you know, go back. and they, yeah. they work with companies, so they can be looking at the wastewater around a plant, mm-hmm. and give feedback. and uh, So there's different ways in which stuff we don't we cho- chose not to own or protect or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Highly successful, impactful. hugely yeah. impactful. Yeah. All sourced from research done
0: at MIT. Yeah, that's amazing. What an array. And that's just a quick sampling of right. <laughs> things I that are bubbling it is up. It's kind of
1: like when everybody asks, I say, well, yeah. you know, there's this really cool one from Glide and it's yeah. all about getting stuff out your, you know, ketchup bottle. But I, I just think that's cool personally, because it's one of those things that always bugs <laughs> <That's> me. <laughs> cool. That is
0: cool. It's practical, too. Yeah. Well, you know, just as we as we wrap up, um, you know, we've got a broad audience of listeners that, you know, I know will be inspired by your story. You know, when, when we think about inviting the next group to follow behind us and you think about the, the trail that you blazed, um, any advice to, you know, the next generation of people that may want to follow your path, that want that see this interest of serving people, making an impact, being around science, not necessarily needing need to be a scientist per se, um, and other characteristics, any words of wisdom or ideas to pass on?
1: Yeah, just um, take your time. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Think big picture. Um, It is very easy to get caught up in the moment or the emotion um, of a trend, you know who remembers NFTs Mm. Uh, you know people spend a whole lot of money trying to work out if (laughs) NFTs were going to be part of tech transfer and I was like you know what (laughs) I'm happy to be a follower on that one so kind of make your decisions wisely but don't feel rushed Mm -hmm. to do it Mm -hmm. Um, there are so many things changing Mm -hmm. our life at the moment whether it's AI and it's application in human health or the way in which we run our business Mm -hmm. Um, don't rush to judgement on people or things Um, I think just and having a calm outlook. I think um, it's it's very easy to get full of anxiety yeah. in, in our current world, and I think it's it's good to pause and reflect. And and we often put pressure on ourselves when uh, nobody else yeah. is putting pressure on us. I love it.
0: I'm taking a deep breath right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, Leslie, I can't tell you how great it was to catch up with you and see you again. And I'm so excited to see everything that you're doing and the impact that you've had. You know, over all of the roles that you've had, um, you know, in, in your time at both the University of Illinois and now at MIT, and really looking forward to continue to see what happens next coming out of the TLO. So thanks for your time.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation. I appreciated it.
0: Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at to unicornscom We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas if you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.